All right. How are we doing this morning? All right, so we're not doing well. How are we doing this morning? All right, yes and amen. Well, my name is Danny. It's a privilege and an honor. More importantly, can we just give a hand clap to Grace? I know that was like the whole Bible, right? So thank you for reading that for us. I want to do something that I often do at uh, opportunities like this uh, to preach at a church and uh basically get the lay of the land. So uh, with all eyes open, so we're not doing the uh, closed bow your heads, I want you to raise your hand if you are a follower of Jesus. You, you proclaim to be a Christian. You know, raise your Okay, so a good portion of you. Who is a fairly new believer, maybe within the past uh, couple years? Raise your hand. Okay. And who grew up in the church? Grew up in the church. It's a lot of you guys. Okay. And I'm going to presume that those that didn't raise your hand, you're either too tired or uh, you're still figuring out faith, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. This is a, um, a, a holy moment for you to encounter the living God, more so than a guest speaker. Uh, these moments that we have, the gathering of the saints, should never be taken lightly. Uh, should never uh, become repetitive or mundane, and when they do, it's a call for us to repent and experience uh, a fullness that God has always intended for us to experience. Uh, and so this morning, I want to pray for us before we get into God's word. I do believe that he has uh, something miraculous in store for all of us. So if you would now, bow your heads with me uh, as I pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the kindness that you show us. Lord, you're worthy of our, our praise and our affection. You're worthy of our stewardship. You're worthy of, of all that we are. And so this morning, uh, I pray that for every single person in this room, man and woman, that we would be able to experience the living God in a way that is necessary, not just what we want. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you, the anxieties of life or uh, the season of difficulty we may be in, or it may be a season of abundance, and that this is a call for thanksgiving. In all of these areas in which we are living, Lord, would you ultimately do one thing, and that's to reveal the beauty and majesty of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. You are rock and redeemer in whom we trust. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it is an honor to, to be here with you and to experience uh, a form of hospitality that is elite. So I just want to, I don't know if Drew's parents are here, but just the opportunity to uh, be cared for in a way. My, my beautiful wife and my uh, crazy son Judah are uh, just blessed to, to be here. And we flew here uh, this uh, Thursday morning. And uh, if you're a new parent, any new parents in the room? Raise your hand. All right, just me then. Okay. Oh, a few of us over here. Isn't it the worst? You know what I'm saying? Like, we can't say that out loud, but it is. It's, it's difficult, and it makes life all the more complicated because your life is no longer your own. That morning, we had to get up around 5 o'clock, and of course, for us, we wait to the last minute to pack. And just to plan and prepare for a third person, it, it makes you reconsider your life choices. It's like, why did we do this to us? And I'm not going to lie, when we're at the airport, uh, there's just this uh, deep jealousy for what was. You see people that are just, you know, they're dressed nice. They just carry their own bag. They're smiling. 
they're just enjoying the fact that they're out to go somewhere. And for us, we're fighting, we're hating ourselves, and just like, why did we do this? And yet, there is something profound, even in a hellacious Thursday morning, is because there's a recognition that our lives no longer belong to us, and there's a complete paradigm shift in how we operate in every single area of our lives. Your time, it ain't yours. Your money, it belongs to somebody else now. Your schedule, your energy, all of these things, you are no longer central to what was once essential to you. And all joking aside, as much as I, I deeply love my son Judah, the reality of fatherhood is that my life is forever changed because of one thing, his existence. In an instant of his birth, there was transformation. There was once an old way of doing something, and now there's a new. Now, my wife may say, not just the birth, brother, when I got pregnant, my life forever changed, and that's exactly right. When there is a moment in time where there is a, an event that is forever transformative, you are beginning to recognize that there is a particular framework that will impact the operations and what you pursue, meaning there is a paradigm that defines your outlook and highlights the very purpose in which you're living for. And that's what we see in the Gospel of John. What John is doing throughout this Gospel is proclaiming that this person of Jesus is in fact the person that he says he is. That he is in fact the Messiah. The saving, the one that we are awaiting upon, the anointed one, the savior of the world. He is who he says he is. Therefore, belief in his gospel, the true message, the good news of grace, will lead to a life of fullness in his name, the light of life. You see, John is advocating and provoking faith in Jesus because it's the result of eternal life. And this is the framework that fuels biblical obedience and godly pursuit. And I would say this, furthermore, this is what allows for us to experience something eternal that satisfies the soul. That's the beauty of his message. And throughout this book, you see John time and again advocating for the fact that pay attention to what Jesus is saying because he's not just a good teacher. He is what you are seeking after. So if the calling in our lives is to know Jesus intimately and to make him known, especially in the midst of opposition and denial, this is the revelation. Jesus is the eternal son who came to reveal the father. Salvation comes by knowing the father through the son, the light of the world, which we'll see. And this is the revelation that changes everything. The paradigm in which you live, the way that you operate is through this grid alone. And that's what I want to walk through today. And my prayer is that you would pay attention. So, point one is this, eternal transformative grace can only be found in Jesus. And we see that in the first 11 verses. I'm not going to read this again, but this is, in fact, the testimony that is important to us because it reveals the, the heart of God, the, 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 the heart of the Father in relation to you and me. And to highlight the beauty of Jesus' ministry in the midst of the opposition, constantly throughout the Gospels, you see these groups of, of, of men, rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. 
that cannot go past that this message or the self-revelation of God in the person of Jesus is the person that they are called to worship. They can't get past it. So there's constant opposition to trap him, to persecute him, and ultimately to crucify, excuse me, crucify him. But this is the beauty of Jesus' ministry in light of this constant wave of opposition. You have a group of Jewish teachers who operate outside the framework or the paradigm of grace. And they bring before Jesus and they condemn a woman who's living in sexual sin. It's crazy because both of these people or persons, the woman who's living in adultery as well as the Pharisees who are outside of the paradigm of grace, they both are living in sin. They're both in need of what Jesus has to offer if, in fact, Jesus is the Messiah. But only one is desperate enough to believe in the message and receive it out of desperation. And you see the humility and the gentleness of God, and I want to highlight this because this is so important. Oftentimes, the way that we operate or live our lives, how we relation to one another, is how we think God views us. Many of us think that God isn't gentle. Many of us don't believe that he is kind towards us. That hesed mercy, this, this loving kindness being mashed together is God's affection for you. And that's what we see in the midst of these group of men condemning a woman. If you can imagine, just set the scene, a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. I don't, I don't have to parse that out for you. She was dragged in public in the group of men, elite teachers, elite positions in social status. She's probably just lowly trying to cover herself up. She has nothing to offer but to identify with her sin. And you see twice over, Jesus bends down. He stoops down. He draws something on the, on the ground. There's multiple interpretations, but there's a commonality oftentimes throughout the gospel where Jesus meets us in our lowly condition. He's not like me when my son, who's barely alive, does something wrong in my immediacy, in my response is to yell or to correct. Rather, what Jesus does is he stoops down and he meets her where she is. Those that, for all of us here, if there's a, a pattern of of sin. I'm not just talking about bad behavior. I'm talking about this habitual, repetitious love for forms of pleasure that is not of the Lord. God's disposition is justice, yes, but that's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? But that's not to defer. It's not to push it under the rug. It's to deal with your sin, but it's to deal with kindness because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And this is just an illustration of Jesus meeting her where she is. It's not condemnation that Jesus seeks. It's conviction. And it's conviction that leads to revival. And he does so by identifying with you and me. Revival is not simply uh, expending a lot of energy in, in 15, 20 minutes of, of worship, although that is great. Absolutely. Revival is, is the shift in our paradigm to ultimately submit every area of our life to King Jesus. 
and it's the enjoyment of that. And when we hear stories like David, who was a man after God's own heart, if you want to simplify that, he was a man that enjoyed the supremacy of Jesus in every single area of his life. There was life in every area. And that's the desire that God has for us in the convictions of our life. And this is the teaching moment. Hear me when I say this. Accusation leads to condemnation. But grace leads to repentance. Accusation leads to condemnation. But it's grace that leads to repentance. As these Pharisees and teachers of the law want to convict and to condemn Jesus for for the things that he's saying, Jesus reveals the sin of the Pharisees in this entire act of coercion. Their hatred of truth continuously leads them to reject Jesus even in their own conviction. Isn't that crazy? It says in the text that they left, they dropped the stones and left out of their conviction Because Jesus saying, if you have not sinned, you may cast the stone. And yet, even in conviction, they leave with rage and anger and spite against Jesus. So just because you have conviction of your sin does not mean you're living in repentance. Because we see that these Pharisees, time and time again, they're doing the same thing. Jesus wants more than you feeling guilt because there is good guilt. Good guilt leads to repentance. And yet the woman we see on the other end, she receives something that she knows doesn't belong to her. And that's new life. You see, Jesus was the one that could cast the first stone. But what does he do? He implores her to experience grace. She has nothing to offer except her sin and yet was able to receive forgiveness because she was desperate enough. It was necessary for her. She had no other option but to find refuge in who Jesus proclaimed to be, and that is Savior. You see, in this entire story, she's silent because she knows she's guilty of the things that she's being condemned for. And yet when she's offered the gift of grace, this undeserving form of forgiveness, she has no other choice but to receive and accept because now it is experiential. Many of us, we know the theological understanding of forgiveness and repentance to turn away from sin and turn to God. You can write a paper on what repentance or confession is, but the experience always brings forth humility and new life. Because Acts 3 talks about at the time or the back end of repentance, there is refreshing. Who's tired? I'd even ask to raise your hand if some of you are like, yup, me. We are tired because we are laboring in vain. You are pursuing things that are not of the Lord, that are outside the calling of God, and yet you blame God for your tiredness. We are tired because we are continuously pursuing degrees of sin rather than repentance and turning towards the Messiah. That's what we see in an instant. She receives grace. Now, I want to read for you the heart of the gospel, Romans 8, 31 through 33, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up 
for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge or accusation against God's elect, God's people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn or accuse? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, is our great mediator. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus? Accusation leads to condemnation. Proving yourself, the life of a Pharisee. Grace leads to humility and repentance. Now, the authority of Jesus, this is crucial because the authority of Jesus in establishing this this beautiful, glorious grace is revealed only if he is who he says he is. Because if he's simply saying, I can offer you something to manipulate, and he is in fact not God, not the Messiah, not the self-revelation of God himself, then his message is completely mute. And this is where we see in the subsequent verses why it matters because the message of hope is only effective if the source is authentic. Authenticity is proof that something, in this case someone, is trustworthy. Now, I like to think myself as a wise and shrewd man, but oftentimes uh, that's not the case. And uh, a few times on eBay and Facebook Marketplace, what inevitably happens is you find something that is just too good to be true. And that's because it is. Most recently, I got into golf, and I found this uh, kind of top-tier Bushnell Pro XC rangefinders. Retails are like 600 bucks, but I found something new for 250 This has to be it. Talk, I talked with him on the phone. I said, give me the receipts. Show me the pictures. And when I opened up that box a couple days ago, inevitably, it's a fake a replica, a facsimile of what it's meant to be. And this is, the, this is the key here. Jesus is not only the God of the universe, the revelation of God himself. It has to be transformative and experiential. It cannot be the landmark of the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ can, can't just land and ruminate in your head. It has to permeate in your heart. And this is what we find, that Jesus is testifying to who he says he is. Second point I want to make is simply from verse 12. Jesus is the light of the world. You see, the fight for our minds and hearts is what spiritual formation and discipleship is all about. This is primarily based upon what we believe to be true and therefore worthy of our affection. We will always be formed by what we love. We will always be manipulated by the things that we submit to, for better and often for worse. Jesus says that he's the light of the world to clearly differentiate a life in the light and a life in the darkness. And I don't want you to brush past these two words, follow me. Or in this case, he says, whoever follows me. This is the heart of invitation. You see that when he calls the first disciples. When you see Simon, Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, they're fishing, they're doing their thing. They're doing the calling that they believe to be true in their life. And they meet the person of Jesus. They experience something miraculous and transformative. And when they dock their boats, they leave behind everything. 
Because in a moment, in an instant, they experience something better. The fact that Jesus is greater than what they thought their calling once was. And this is the life of light and a life of darkness that Christ is calling to differentiate. The invitation to follow Jesus identifies something foundational. Luke 14, 27 says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his or her own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The reason I believe that there is a faith without power oftentimes in the church today is because we have accepted a form of discipleship that is without cost. So, if you look at your life, is Christianity primarily built on the Sunday morning? I believe you call them connection groups. These are good things. Uh, the Thursday night joint that y'all have for, for St. Paul in Minneapolis, those are things that cultivate love and affection for Jesus. But discipleship has to be costly because it is the primary paradigm in which all areas of your life operate out of. Jesus is not just supplemental, he's central. That's why there's clear distinction in what Jesus is offering out of grace, but there's absolute parameters in which he's giving invitation. A light of life that he references is not a calculus of good versus bad or right versus wrong. A light of life versus a light of darkness is submission to God or submission to self. Submission to self looks real easy. You make any decision you want, whenever you want, how you feel, whatever you dictate, is at a premium. You are the ultimate authority. So when we listen to language of darkness, we associate that with these deep-cutting, heinous forms of sin. But the reality check is that Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you will live a light of life because your submission is unto the God of light. But if you live for yourself and you define who you want to be and you dictate what your life looks like, you're living in darkness. Even people in the church right now. The question that needs to be answered is what is most impactful in your decisions in every area of life. Psalm 119, 105, you saw this, I bet, on a coffee mug. And we're gonna go KJV, because it's like super spiritual, all right? Thy, they use thy, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is, this is so simple. And yet we complicate this because the message of this is saying that the word of God I will meditate on. Psalms 1, Psalm 5 talks about this. I will meditate. I will wake up early in the morning. I will prepare an altar and I will wait in holy expectation. Because all that matters in order for me to take one step forward is the word of God. Because that's the lamp unto my feet and therefore it will light up. Where I am going. All of us want to talk about destiny and, and calling. Your calling is to be dependent on God's word. Don't worry so much about is the calling to be in this job or this relationship. And I'm not saying that's not the case. Primarily, Jesus is saying be concerned 
with submitting yourself to the beauty and the power of the word of God, and that will bring clarity, discernment, and wisdom in the areas that you're praying for right now. And furthermore, the last point I want to make is there is always opposition to deny Jesus' claim of authority, revelation, and purpose. And that's just 30, 13 through 30. In this text, Jesus is authenticating himself with truthful testimony. But these Pharisee folk, they're just too blind to see. Why is it that the Pharisees couldn't believe, but this section ends with saying many believed in him? Now, when Grace was reading this, a lot of it is like, what is he talking about? It's a lot of stuff. And yet people that were listening heard the message and believed in him. And yet more intellectual, more sophisticated, educated folks could not listen and therefore believe because they were too blinded by their pride. Pride would always skew your judgment. Pride would always convince you that your thoughts are greater than the thoughts of others. That's why we hate the word submission to God. The idea that you no longer dictate, you are no longer supreme in your life, but that is the moment of humility in which belief leads to faithful action. There is a clear distinction being made regarding the eternal destiny that is directly impacted by our discipleship here on earth. You see in verses 22 and 24, an eternal perspective is highlighted. What I mean by that is an eternal perspective is to have a kingdom of God mindset in which how you live here now. It's Colossians 3. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. It's to know and believe that there is a heavenly place waiting for us and that the rewards that await us are built upon the way that we represent Christ now. And our discipleship is directly impacted by the eternal destiny. Jesus is making this clear. You are not going where I'm going. I am from above. You're from below. The reason why you're not going where I'm going is because you're too blinded by your pride and your self-glory that you cannot admit that there is a greater message of truth. You're not going to the heavenly places. But for those that believe, the invitation still remains. Are you willing to say yes to something better, something greater? Jesus is, in fact, the self-revelation of God in what he does and what he proclaims. There is so much. The reason why I, I minimize my uh, social media is because uh, I get too angry. Get too angry because there's so many opportunities, so many avenues of, of messaging when it comes to the reality of who Jesus is. And yet, there is overwhelming evidence. I encourage you, if you're figuring out your faith, because as much as a message may be about purpose, about finding peace, there are other religions, other ways of life, other mantras that can provide peace and purpose. What differentiates the divine peace and purpose we found in Jesus is that the Bible is what he says he is. There's so much overwhelming evidence that testifies to the authenticity of this book 
that proclaims the person of Jesus. And yet, in light of this evidence or evidences, why is it that so many people continue to deny it? It's because our vision is skewed with our own pride. We're unwilling to repent. So I want to close with this. Later, you'll talk about this in chapter uh, 14, verse 6. So the word of God, because it's written in red. All right. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. A definitive article that says there is no other way. And when you think about what Jesus is saying, and it's partnered or marked by his character of kindness, this means that revelation is always invitation. When God reveals something to you, it's not just to reveal it to you. It's for you to take hold of the opportunity to respond. Throughout the Bible, you see this invitation. Throughout the Gospels, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So that's the question today. Do you have ears to hear? And that's what I want to pray for this morning. I want to lead us in three areas. The first is for the believer, but is just living in this uh, cyclical pattern of, of sin. This is a moment for you to repent because God is speaking clearly. If that's you, this is a moment for you to come before God, to confess these things before him and know that it is with kindness that he leads us to repentance. The second is for those that are figuring out your faith. This is the opportunity not to understand everything, but to understand one thing, that you are in need of a Savior. You are a terrible God for your own life. I don't have to know you to be 100% guaranteed that that's a fact. And God is inviting you into something fuller, drawing you out of darkness into light. If that's you, this is a moment not to repeat after me, but to simply ask the Lord, Lord, reveal yourself to me in the ways that you are right now. And lastly is that the church at large, that Redemption Church would be a church, a people of God that exudes grace, that leads people to Jesus. So with all heads bowed and eyes closed, wherever you are on that spectrum, would you pray? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that in this moment that people, would, that, that people would miss the movement of God, that you would lead people to repentance if that is for the believer, that they would find refuge in the fact that your grace is greater than their sin. Where sin abounds, grace blows it out of the water. If there are men and women here that have just chosen to live for the self, Lord, would they be revealed the beauty and majesty of submission to you? And for those that have not yet placed faith in the person of Jesus, God, I pray that you would make alive in them, that, that, that revival would take place in this morning. 
and that would, they would see that their eyes would be opened to the person of Jesus because you are the way, the truth, and the life. May this church be marked by grace. May this church be built by men and women who love you fiercely, who love people even more. Will this church be fueled by gospel grace? Just want to take a moment also, if you would join with me, just pray for the leadership. I don't know everyone by name, so please forgive me, but I just want to lift up Drew, Melissa, their family, every person that's on staff. Lord, would you bring a, a, a spiritual, even rejuvenation that their gaze would be captivated by your glory and your beauty yet again. And that they would lead out of love and they would lead out of desperation to cling to you. That they would find refuge in you, in your presence. They would find the hope of God in how they lead, love, and serve this church. Lord, protect them from the evil one who comes to kill and to steal and destroy. God, bring forth unity in every way. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.